This is a podcast from the January 22, 2007 meeting of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. This podcast is from the morning session relating to gender equity and college sports, 35 years after Title IX. The podcast runs approximately one hour and 56 minutes. For more information on the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, visit www.knightcommission.org. Gender Equity and College Sports, 35 Years After Title IX Over the past decade, the population of women participating in intercollegiate athletics has stabilized at around 42% of all athletes. At the same time, the population of women enrolled as students has risen close to 60% of all students, particularly at community colleges and liberal arts institutions, but also at state flagship and land-grant universities. The debate over Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, the federal law banning sex discrimination at virtually all educational institutions, has been tremendously bitter when it comes to athletics. Advocates for women's sports say colleges still do not offer enough opportunities for female athletes and that women's teams still receive inadequate resources when it comes to facilities, budgets, coaching, marketing, and publicity. Opponents protest that federal Title IX guidelines encourage colleges to drop men's teams and limit opportunities for male athletes and have sued universities and the federal government unsuccessfully to force changes. As coaching salaries, facility costs, and budgets continue to rise, athletic directors are under increasing pressure to cut costs. Many are doing so by dropping the so-called Olympic sports. Rutgers University and James Madison University are two institutions that have done so most recently, and James Madison University's official position was that it made the cuts, including some to women's sports, to avoid liability under Title IX. During this session, the panelists will review the state of gender equity in intercollegiate athletics 35 years after the passage of Title IX and address questions such as, why Division I institutions are dropping sports, both men's and women's? Is it because of budget constraints or in an effort to meet the law's requirements? What do the trends look like for the future? Has the department's interpretation of 1970s-era guidelines to permit direct surveys of student populations opposed by the NCAA, the Knight Commission, and many women's organizations made a difference in the way colleges strive for gender equity? Panelists in the morning session to discuss these issues are Christine Grant, an emeritus professor and former director of women's athletics at the University of Iowa, Janet Judge, a lawyer with the firm Verrill Dana specializing in gender issues in higher education, Ted Leland, vice president for university development at the University of the Pacific, and Eric Pearson, chairman of the College Sports Council. I'd like to um, begin by welcoming our panelists here. We're very pleased that you took the time uh, to be with us today on, to help us at the Knight Commission uh, acquire uh, further insights into what is a very critical area of importance to us in terms of our various agendas on dealing with some of the major issues that affect uh, intercollegiate athletics. Uh, <clears throat> 
The title of the panel, of course, is the Gender Equity in College and Sports, uh, 35 years after Title IX. Uh, one can hardly pick up a paper these days on the sports page without coming into a, an article that deals with this issue. Um, you have in your docket uh, the background and bios on the various panelists, so I'm not going to give that the read it in the interest of giving maximum time to their presentations and our discussions with them. Uh, they're, they will uh, speak in the order which is listed in the agenda. And uh, so I will call first on uh, uh, Christine Grant, who is the most recent winner of the NCAA Gerald Ford Award. So, Grant, glad to have you. Thank you. President Wharton, President Turner, and other distinguished members of the Commission, thank you very much for inviting me here today. Today I'd like to do four things present you with facts and figures that de describe the progress we've made since 1972 for women in sport. And two, to briefly describe the financial trends, especially in football and men's basketball. And three, note areas where institutions are doing well and where institutions need to consider providing additional support. And four, identify what I perceive to be some major problems and offer a few suggestions for change. In slide one, the growth of girls' participation at the high school level stands at 41%. It is also important to note that boys' participation has also increased significantly since 1971, from 3.7 million to over 4 million. Today, boys at the high school level still have 59% of all athletic opportunities. And in last year, the increase in boys' opportunities was almost twice that for girls. The same trend of increasing participation slots for men is also seen at the intercollegiate level. In the NCAA since 1989, men's participation opportunities have increased significantly. Indeed, in the last year alone, their opportunities increased by five and a half thousand, while women's rose by fewer than 4,000. These recent trends are of concern. There is a myth circulating around the nation that Title IX has caused the demise of some men's sports, specifically wrestling and gymnastics. Yet the next slide shows there has actually been a significant and a steady decline in the popularity of these two sports since the early 1980s. You'll recall that in the decade of the 1980s, Title IX did not apply to athletics for a period of four years due to the Supreme Court's decision in Grove City College versus Bell. Additionally, there was little, if any, enforcement of the law even when it was restored in 1988 when Congress passed the Civil Rights Restoration Act of 1987. So the fact that many teams were lost in the 80s is not because of Title IX. The reality is that the popularity of specific sports changes over the years. For example, look at the increase in the number of football teams and soccer teams in that same time frame. Between these two sports, 333 teams were added for men, and teams that were lost in wrestling and gymnastics totaled 182. I also decided to track what was happening in women's gymnastics. 
As you see, the declining popularity of that sport is clearly apparent. The General Accounting Office was asked to do an in-depth study of participation opportunities in both the NCAA and the NAIA. Their results show that in an 18-year period, there was a net gain of 36 teams for men, which constituted a 5% increase in participation. That trend was supported by the data from the NCAA. Between 1988 and 2002, there was a net increase of 61 teams. After further research, however, I discovered that while Divisions 2 and 3 had experienced net gains for men's teams, Division 1 had experienced a net loss. Upon further investigation, I discovered it was in Division 1A where the greatest net losses had occurred. This is surprising since these institutions have by far the largest budgets. I believe that million dollar salaries for football and men's basketball, coupled with an arms race in the building of superb facilities, may well be related to the loss of 109 men's sports in Division 1A. For example, at Iowa, in 2005, we paid our football coach over $2 million we paid our president of the university $300,000. In a 13-month period since that time, we paid our coach $4.6 million. The next slide shows the enormous population from which we recruit our intercollegiate athletes. Yet fewer than 170,000 female student athletes get the chance to compete at the university level. Obviously, we could add hundreds of women's teams from this large population. If we are not adding sports at the collegiate level, it is not because of a lack of interest or a lack of ability. A very worrisome trend is in the 30-year decline in the number of women coaches. Men now coach 98% of men's teams and have taken 58% of all the coaching positions in women's athletics. Tracking the financial situation for the last 30 years shows that the lack of progress toward increased financial support for women was not caused by a lack of money. It was caused by a lack of commitment. The money was there, the commitment was not. In Division 1A, for every new dollar that was spent on women's sports after 1972 until 1993, three brand new dollars went to men's sports. Since 1993, for every new dollar spent on women's sports, two new dollars have gone to men's sports. This allocation is not a trend that lends itself to creating equal opportunities and comparable treatment for our female student athletes. On the contrary, it exacerbates the problem. In 1993, a new researcher decided to, to factor out the administrative costs. You'll note that while the expenses of men's athletics currently are more than double those for women, the administrative costs are also more than double the costs for women's programs. I should caution you that the 2005 financial data are preliminary findings released by the NCAA Research Department for this specific presentation. 
we will not have the final figures for two months. A troubling trend is the increasing expenditures in football and men's basketball. You will note in this slide that men's football expenditures have increased more than threefold since 1985, and men's basketball expenses more than fourfold. At the same time, the deficits in athletic programs have been increasing at a rate that is troubling. In Division I, the average deficit doubled between 1993 and 2003 to $4.4 million. This is at a time when universities as a whole are struggling to finance academic programs. All other divisions are facing the same trend in deficits. However, it is important to note that for the first time with the 2005 data, both direct and indirect allocations to the athletic department have been excluded. So comparing the 2005 data to previous years is problematic. These allocations include direct and indirect institutional support, student fees, and state or federal support. And by excluding them, the deficits at many institutions have risen. This leads us to examine the expenditures of football and men's basketball. In 1985, the budgets for these two sports took up almost half the men's athletic budget, 49%. In the latest financial analysis, these two sports now consume three quarters of the men's budget, 76%. And where does that leave the men's so-called minor sports? On the short end. Let me rephrase what's happening. Football with an average squad of 117 in Division 1A is spending about half a percentage point on each student athlete for a total of 57 and a half 57.5 of the men's budget. Basketball with 15 players is spending over one percentage point on each student athlete for a total of 18.5 of the men's budget. The other men's sports have only 23% of the budget for as many as 200 student athletes. It's not Title IX that's causing this problem. It's the insatiable appetites of football and men's basketball. The latest NCAA gender equity figures show that in the area of participation, Division I has been offering a greater percentage of opportunities. In Division I-A, the percentage of female athletes is 8% percentage points below the percentage of female undergraduates. And in Division I-AAA, it is 6 percentage points below the percentage of undergraduates. However, it's clear that in Division I-AA and Divisions II and III, they need to address this issue to determine if their institutions are being responsive to the increasing interests and abilities of their female students. In the area of scholarships, the figures are better, but that is because they only have to match the participation rates, which, as I mentioned, are still below where one would expect them to be. In recruiting, 1A is well behind the other divisions and subdivisions, and this is an area that really needs attention. So too is the disparity in Division 1A in the total expense column. Division 1A is 11 percentage points behind the participation ratio, while the other subdivisions and divisions are doing well. 
Again, it appears that the most lucrative programs in the nation are not committed to equitable treatment for male and female student athletes. Let me interject some good news in this area. Under the leadership of President Miles Brand, the NCAA Diversity and Inclusion Committee is recommending several changes which, if implemented, could result in greater progress toward gender equity. The final slide shows a 2003 poll by the Wall Street Journal and NBC News. It records that 68% of the public approve of Title IX. What is more surprising to many is the result that cutting back on men's athletics to ensure equivalent athletic opportunities for women received a 66% approval rating. In summary, the facts show that both men's and women's opportunities to play sports have increased since Title IX was enacted in 1972, with men and boys still receiving more opportunities than women and girls today. While some men and women's teams have decreased in number, this decline is not because of Title IX, but rather because the popularity of specific sports changes over the years for various reasons. With respect to expenditures, Educational institutions are not even close to providing equal financial support to their women. And men's budgets, particularly in Division I, are being dominated by football and basketball, which leaves very little money for all the other men's teams. One of the problems facing intercollegiate athletic programs is that while presidential control sounds good in theory, in reality, it leaves each president with no protection against influential donors and rabbit fans when difficult decisions must be made. Hence, we have witnessed the growth of exorbitant salaries for some coaches, coupled with the arms race and facilities that is mortgaging our future. The end result is that very slow progress is being made in the area of gender equity, and especially in Division 1A, a loss of our men's Olympic sports. At the congressional level, the salaries are also causing some to question the tax-exempt status of intercollegiate athletic programs, which, if it were lost, would be catastrophic for most departments. What is needed, I believe, is to have Congress grant our athletic programs an antitrust exemption in order to bring salaries back in line with university professors. Second, I would recommend that we consider giving the responsibility for oversight of the athletic department to a committee composed almost exclusively of tenured faculty. As you know, this was the governance system in effect at our institutions in the Big Ten Conference for decades. Third, if we are truly serious about putting academics first, let us consider seriously restricting weeknight games in all sports during the regular season and putting the competitions where they belong, on the weekends. By effectuating these three changes, that is bringing the salaries back in line, having tenure faculty oversee the athletic department and restricting midweek restrict, uh, competition, we simultaneously start bringing athletics back toward campus values, while silencing the critics in Congress and in the faculty. Additionally, we would immediately free up enough monies to progress toward equal opportunity and keep our men's Olympic sports. Right now, we may have a unique opportunity before us because these issues are thoroughly integrated at this time in history. 
so perhaps they could be tackled as a package. Taking courageous action could result in significant and badly needed changes for our entire athletic enterprise. I thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. We'll go, we'll go through each one and then have the questions afterwards. Huh? Hello, my name is Janet Judge. I'd like to thank you for inviting Sorry. me to share some of my observations on the current and future state of gender equity in intercollegiate athletics and to address the questions put to this panel by the Commission. I was 10 years old when Title IX was passed and have been involved with the law in one form or another for my entire life. As the youngest of seven fairly athletic children, five brothers and one sister, I learned early on how to work cooperatively with those who control the limited resources available to ensure equitable opportunities for all. This skill has helped me tremendously in my practice today as an attorney specializing in intercollegiate athletics. In my work, I assist colleges and universities in their efforts to understand and comply with NCAA, conference, state, and federal legislation as it applies to intercollegiate athletics. A substantial portion of my practice for the past 14 years has been devoted to gender equity reviews. This work keeps me on campuses and in touch with those who are directly affected by the policies at work and those we are talking about today. Since September, I have visited 12 institutions across the country and have spoken with presidents, deans, faculty athletic representatives, coaches, and student athletes about many of the same issues we are addressing today. Their views are incorporated into this discussion. I have found that the vast majority of schools continue to fail to meet some of the very basic equity expectations set forth under Title IX. In particular, many schools cannot demonstrate that they are able to meet any of Title IX's three separate participation tests, most simply because they have not taken steps to assess interest and ability under the third prong and therefore are unaware of their compliance status. As you remember, schools may show that they meet the participation requirement of Title IX in one of three following ways. Under prong one, by demonstrating that intercollegiate participation opportunities for male and female students are provided in numbers substantially proportionate to their respective full-time undergraduate enrollments. Or under prong two, by demonstrating a history and continuing practice of program expansion which is responsive to the developing interests and abilities of the members of the underrepresented sex or under prong three, by demonstrating that the interest and abilities of the members of the underrepresented sex are fully and effectively accommodated by the present program. Schools often fail to monitor interest and ability even when the current program clearly does not meet either the substantial proportionality or history and practice prongs. Those administrators then believe erroneously that they have limited options when taken to task by OCR or by threatened litigation. All too often, the quick fix involves cutting viable programs instead of reallocating existing resources to expand opportunities. As we have seen lately, these cuts many times are followed by public announcements blaming Title IX and innocent members of the underrepresented sex, those student-athletes who were never given the opportunity to participate at all for the drastic actions. In reality, the real culprit is lack of oversight, poor planning, and institutional failure to allocate budgets fairly in order to allow both men and women to play intercollegiate sports to the best of their ability with whatever equitable resources they are provided. The recent cuts at James Madison University are a case in point. 
Although gender equity concerns were initially blamed for the elimination of seven men's and three women's programs, subsequent statements show that the school's decision to reconfigure its athletics department took into consideration a variety of factors and not just gender equity. JMU decided to reduce the number of sports it offers in order to devote greater resources to and hopefully excel in those sports it retained. Clearly, Title IX did not compel JMU to drop any men's or women's program. OCR guidance expressly discourages compliance through reduction. Once JMU's decision was made to cut women's programs, Title, Title IX did come into play in that the school had to realize that the only viable participation prong available to it was substantial proportionality. When you cut women's programs, you can no longer demonstrate expansion or exhaustion of interest. What often is lost in post-cut discussions about the unfairness of Title IX is the fact that the law does not require schools to adjust participation rates in their programs unless a sufficient number of the underrepresented sex can demonstrate that they are interested in sufficient numbers and ability to field a competitive squad. Those talented student athletes who apply to and appear on campuses spontaneously without being recruited must further show that intercollegiate athletic competition in their sport exists in the school's competitive region. This standard is quite high. As we all know, most talented student athletes who are interested and able to compete at the collegiate level typically apply to schools where their sports already enjoy varsity status. So in response to the question of why are schools dropping programs, I think the answer is a complicated mix of the effects of inertia, a lack of strategic vision, budgetary constraints, increased expectations of team success, and gender equity. Schools are not suddenly, 35 years after its passage, deciding to cut programs, both men's and women's, in order to comply with Title IX. The reality is that both men and women lose when programs are cut. Title IX is not the culprit. It simply imposes a judicially approved standard of equity upon institutions and then leaves it to those schools to tailor their programs to meet its stated criteria. Perhaps the most significant stumbling block to compliance, in my opinion, is the overriding belief that Title IX is strictly an athletic department issue and not an institution-wide responsibility. This approach demonstrates a failure to value athletics as an integral part of the institution's overall athletic mission. And it simply is not true, as evidenced by the very penalty that OCR has at its disposal to punish those who refuse to comply. The withdrawal of federal funding to the institution as a whole, and not just those dollars that benefit athletics directly. Although I should add the caveat that this is a stick in theory only, since it's never been applied. In addition, the Equity and Athletics Disclosure Act requires institutions and not athletic departments to file reports annually with the Department of Education and to make the reports available to the public upon request. This data is then posted on the internet by the Department of Education with the name of the college president prominently displayed. The public perception is then that the data represents the commitment of the institution generally to gender equity and not just that of the athletics department. Broad institutional involvement can best be demonstrated by the development of a working mission statement that sets forth the institution's clear commitment to equity in athletics. Taking the time to articulate a mission statement that actually resonates with student athletes and athletes and athletic staff is a worthwhile venture and sets the tone for future compliance. Once articulated, the NCAA rules provide that the department's mission statement should be reviewed and endorsed by the institution's board of trustees. This is rarely, rarely done. This oversight fits nicely into the concept of institutional control. When boards and their presidents are aware of the mission of their own athletic departments, when they review it, discuss it, and vote to endorse it, 
they buy into it and are ultimately responsible for its implementation. Schools are asked to certify that this process has occurred as part of the NCAA self-review and certification process. This process further seeks to make gender equity an institution-wide issue in that it requires broad institutional representation when reviewing athletics policies and procedures, including commitment to gender equity in athletics. As part of the self-review, committee members must identify which of the three participation tests the current program meets and answer questions about athletic scholarships and those additional areas of compliance as set forth under the 1979 policy interpretation. Each school is then expected to submit to the NCAA a gender equity plan that addresses with specific timetables any deficiencies that they have identified. Schools are also required under the law to identify a Title IX officer and provide his or her name and contact information to all enrolled students and in all recruiting materials put out by the university. In my experience, few clients are able to identify their Title IX officer either because one has not been designated or because the designation has not become public. It is important to have at least one person on campus who understands the law, is charged with its oversight, and is in a position to ensure that gender equity has the place at the table when important decisions are made. One of the trends that Title IX officers should be tracking is the increase in female undergraduate enrollment. According to the latest figures from the Department of Education, women's enrollment is increasing at a faster rate than men's and is expected to continue to do so through 2015. According to the middle of the road projections published in, 19, in 2006 by the department's National Center for Education Statistics, women currently make up approximately 57.9 of all post-secondary enrollees and are projected to increase to 58.1 in 2010 and 58.9 in 2015. These numbers do not break out part-time and full-time enrollment and Title IX is only concerned with those undergraduates who are enrolled in full-time basis. So what are the implications of these trends for Title IX compliance? Clearly, schools must continue to meet one of the three participation tests as set forth under Title IX. Now, however, some institutions are finding it more difficult to reach substantial proportionality, especially when supporting large football programs. For this reason, schools are interested in exploring compliance under the second and third prong in a way that I haven't seen before. Reliance on the third prong is not new, as demonstrated by statistics recently released by the Office for Civil Rights that indicate, in the majority of cases, it has investigated that, there, that schools have resolved their uh, allegations of noncompliance under, under prong three. What has changed is the agency's interpretation of the third prong. In 2005, OCR is issued an additional clarification of the three-part test, setting forth for the first time a model survey and a set of guidelines to be followed by schools and OCR investigators when determining compliance with the third prong of Title IX. In short, the additional clarification dramatically narrows the scope of inquiry an institution must make in order to satisfy its obligation to assess the potential interest of the underrepresented sex in the following ways. First, the additional clarification provides that schools may determine interest simply by distributing an email survey to all current and admitted students. Second, it does not set a minimum of survey, survey response rates, a critical issue in the recent case of Barrett v. Westchester, where a federal district court held that a 39% survey, 39 survey response rate was inf insufficient to accurately gauge interest. Under the new model survey, we no longer ha need to have a minimum standard in order to validate the survey. 
Rather, the additional clarification states that a student's failure to respond to the survey at all may be counted as a no-interest response. According to the additional clarification, schools may, but no longer must, take into account uh, the additional indicia of in interest set forth in the 1996 clarification when assessing full and effective accommodation. Such criteria include, or but, not, but are not limited to, discussions with current student-athletes, discussions with those student-athletes who are admitted, uh, reviews of uh, high school and club programs in the area and in the general recruiting area. In addition, under the 1996 clarification, OCR stated that if a substantial number of high schools from the relevant region offer a particular sport in which the institution does not offer for the underrepresented sex, OCR will ask the institution to provide a basis for any assertion that students and admitted students are not interested in playing the sports. That's very different from the additional clarification. Although criticized soundly and for good reason by this commission as well as the NCAA and Ted Leland, the model survey is at least a start. Schools tend to be risk adverse and when seeking to comply with the law, want assurances that their methodology is sound. Accordingly, schools have been interested in the stamp of approval contained in the study and as one university council stated to me, other indicia of interest should be taken into account but only after the model survey is distributed in keeping with OCR guidelines. The problems associated with email distribution and the no response counting are easily overcome. Schools can and are distributing the survey in a manner that guarantees a response one way or another by making it part of the registration process or other school-wide mandatory events. While there, are no problem, while there are problems with the layout of the survey and the language contained therein, it at least provides a model that schools can improve upon. For example, the layout needs to be more accessible and portions of the survey should be rewritten, especially the one section that advises respondents to weigh the burdens of athletic participation, which they state are, include 20 hours of practice each week, the NCAA maximum, travel and missed class time during the season, and individual regimens of training during the off-season against the benefits of athletic participation, which they limit to financial rewards and academic tutoring. In answer to the question, has the department's interpretation of the 1970s era guideline to, to permit direct surveys of student populations opposed by the NCAA, the Knight Commission, and many women's organizations made a difference in the way colleges strive for gender equity? I believe that it has, but not in a substantial way. Schools are more interested in relying upon the third prong to demonstrate compliance, but they also understand the concerns raised about the survey and are interested in working to improve it to ensure that they will get the judicial stamp of approval in addition to OCR stamp of approval. Moreover, schools are continuing to look to other indicia of interest described in the 1996 clarification as well, if only for purely pragmatic reasons. They want the assurances that they are in compliance with law, but also want to add programs that make sense. In other words, programs that will fit into the existing mix and are popular among high school students within the reach of the institution. In conclusion, there is a scene in the movie North Dallas 40 where discouraged and beat up athletes argue that coaches and administrators need to remember that sports are about more than money. Our colleges and universities faced with increasing budget shortfalls have imposed a professional sports business model mentality on their athletic programs. It's time to remember that college sports are educational activities, that coaches are educators, and that the vast majority of our student athletes are playing sports just because they love to play.
College athletics needs to treat these male and female participants equitably and not as business assets. Male and female student athletes, wrestlers, swimmers, gymnasts, and track and field athletes deserve a fair share of the money currently tied up in extravagant salaries, excessive stadium and field house construction, and disproportionate football and basketball budgets. It's not about Title IX, it's about remembering what college athletics is supposed to be all about. Thank you. Thank you, Ted Leland. <clears throat> yes, my name, <clears throat> excuse me, my name is Ted Leland. I'm the uh, uh, Vice President for Advancement at the University of Pacific in uh, Stockton, California. And uh, I've also uh, spent eight years as the Athletic Director at Dartmouth College, uh, three years at Pacific, and the last 15 years at Stanford University as Director of Athletics. But I think the reason I'm here today is because I was Chairman of a Department of Education commission on uh, um, uh, the equal opportunity in athletics. In, in other words, a, a review, uh, a government review of Title IX, it, uh, uh, it ended up with a, uh, a report called Open to All Title IX at 30. Um, and I think that's the reason I've been asked to, uh, to come today. The commission uh, uh, interviewed, had uh, 50 experts, uh, over 100 people from the uh, general public testified. We had four open meetings and six meetings uh, uh, total of the commission. And uh, um, I thought I would just, uh, I think Welsh is, and Amy have given you uh, uh, the copies of the report, so I won't go into in detail, but I, I think I would like to make some general observations about it. Uh, first of all, though, let me say it's a, it's a privilege to be here, and I really do appreciate for those of us who love college athletics but are concerned about the balance of athletics, academics, the commercial enterprise versus the educational enterprise. We do appreciate the work that this um, uh, uh, group has done over a period of time. The Knight Commission has been, a, a, I think, a, a colleague and a friend to those of us who, who, who love athletics but are, are concerned about uh, its future. Um, I really thought that there was two questions that the government asked our commission to look into. And the first one is, uh, uh, how has Title IX served the American people? And I think that the answer is it's been great. Um, it's changed the public perception of women athletes. It's helped change the public perception of women in our country. There's still a lot of work to be done. Equal rights for women is not a reality everywhere in athletics. But I think there's been a lot of progress made. Uh, clearly, um, uh, the idea that women deserve equal opportunity in athletics is uh, uh, a American value now. Um, that battle has been won in my mind. There's a lot of arguments and a lot of discussion about how we define equal opportunity and how we administer the law, but I think uh, uh, we had only one person uh, testify before us and received only one of thousands of documents that said, in effect, that women don't deserve equal opportunity. So I think the American public believes that women deserve equal opportunity. This is also a very popular law among the American people. Of all of our civil rights legislation, it's not just Christine's uh, um, uh, uh, data that she gave you, but uh, what we heard from the American public and other uh, uh, surveys that the American public supports Title IX. Uh, and not just equal opportunity, but also the law. And I have one interesting digression here. Political scientists generally tell us that uh, you know, the government action uh, reflects the values of the society and maybe even sometimes lags behind the value of the society. But those of us who've looked into the history of Title IX realize that uh, this was an example where courageous government officials took a stance 
and said that women deserve equal opportunity in athletics. That was not a community value in 1972. It is a community value now. So this is one where the process was turned on its head uh, in, in effect, where the government took a stance and the values of the community followed. I know this. I was there in 1972. I was one of the original um, in 1979 uh, um, uh, advisors to the government when they did the original uh, um, uh, in instruction manual for compliance with Title IX, which came out in 79. I was an advisor to the government. And uh, then I, it comes full circle where I get to chair this commission. So I think that there's been, although there's still a lot of work to be done, a lot of work to be done. And as I said, equal opportunity isn't a reality everywhere for women. Uh, Title IX has been a success. The second question I thought we asked, got asked by the government, is uh, uh, how are we doing administratively? Is the way we're administering Title IX best, the best way to serve the American public? In effect, we've talked a little bit about the three-part test, um, but I want to back up for a second and say that there's really two parts to the Title IX, the 1979 interpretation. One is that universities must be provide substantial equal access, and that's where we get into the three-pronged test argument, but they also must provide substantially equal financial aid and substantially equal goods and services. So there's sort of two parts of it. There's the substantially equal part, and then there's the three-pronged test of the first part, so I don't want to overly complicate it. The answer that we found to the question of uh, is there a better, more effective way than the 1979 interp to uh, uh, manage our uh, uh, oversight of Title IX, I think our response was we couldn't find it. It may be out there. Uh, the way one uh, um, uh, commissioner described to me, there is no low-hanging fruit here. That in effect, our commission um, supported the 1979 interpretation um, uh, in in the main, in in general. Um, uh, we didn't really have time. I think one criticism of our commission was we went awfully quick and quickly, and that is true. Uh, and I think many of us would have liked to have had more time, but the politics of the day uh, uh, won out, and uh, uh, we had to move uh, quickly. We were asked to move quickly. Um, but there is, I, I think, the 1979 interp is what we're going to have in front of us for a long time. I do have a couple suggestions and then one more philosophical comment. We came up with 15 unanimous recommendations and seven uh, other recommendations that were not unanimous, and I'd like to refer to six of them that I think, or a few of them, excuse me, really three in general that I think would be very helpful if uh, this commission could support. One is uh, uh, recommendation number six, the Office of Civil Rights should aggressively enforce Title IX standards, including implementing sanctions for institutions do not comply. In effect, what our commission found was that the sanction that the government had for non-compliance with Title IX was, uh, uh, was the atom bomb. That was the withdrawal of all federal funding to the entire institution. So in effect, what would happen at Stanford University if we were not in compliance with Title IX, the athletic department, that all of our federal funding for the medical school and all the students' basic economic opportunity grants, everything would go away for the whole university. And of course, no one was going to do that to us. But there was no sort of, I would call it, intermediate sanction or other sanction system that would have, have pushed people to move more quickly to enforce Title IX in their athletic department, but not have this uh, uh, sort of nuclear holocaust that nobody was going to, uh, uh, to implement. So there has been, in effect, no sanctions. Um, uh, then I think there's also the second thing I'd like to see, is, which is recommendation 16 and 17 the commission came up with, is some way to accommodate walk-ons. 
in other words, there's sort of an unintended consequence of the 1979 interpretation that uh, uh, motivates people to cap uh, uh, the, the squad sizes for men. Not only just maybe drop sports for men, but cap cap the squad size. So in effect, what happens on the ground, and we had lots of testimony both from athletes and from coaches and from administrators, is a, a walk-on, a non-scholarship athlete is brought into the coach's office and told, I'd love to keep you on the team, young man, but I can't because of Title IX. So I'd love to keep you on the team, but I can't because of Title IX. In effect, sort of... Uh, um, demonizing Title IX, demonizing the female athletes in a way that's, uh, we think, uh, detrimental to people's education, to students' education. And, and the whole uh, purpose of Title IX was to improve opportunities, not decrease them. We couldn't find a way to, uh, uh, to deal with this problem, given the 79 interpretation. But I think that uh, uh, clearly the, 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 the people we heard from, the American public, would like us to find an answer. Uh, to this uh, uh, capping uh, uh, or dropping of men's sports as an unintended consequences. I think number uh, recommendation number eight, which, which basically I think Christine mentioned a little bit, is to uh, reduce the expenses uh, generally in college athletics, uh, including uh, uh, exploring ways for an antitrust exemption. Uh, we've all uh, seen the uh, uh, arms race, and uh, um, I think that we've all struggled with it. We hear the American public struggling with it. Uh, uh, and uh, we don't have, we didn't have an answer, but uh, I think that uh, uh, I hope you would feel that uh, uh, at least that the commission was uh, uh, sort of colleagues in your efforts to try to uh, help us balance uh, uh, academics and athletics, uh, given the arms race that's going on. And the last thing, this is more of a philosophical uh, um, uh, paradox. I thought my job was sort of to engender discussion. So uh, uh, let me give you what I call the big-time football paradox, and I wish I could solve this problem. But he here's the way I would lay it out. Um, on the one hand, football is the enemy of Title IX. Um, it, first of all, we uh, in the Tower, Senator Tower made a, a proposal in 72 that, uh, in effect, uh, uh, football be excluded from the uh, uh, calculations uh, regarding Title IX, in effect, as, as some cynics have said, that football is a sort of a third gender. There's male athletes, female athletes in football. Um, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, why is that? It's because of its opulent expenses. Uh, it's uh, uh, plane rides on charter planes. It's nights in hotels. It's salaries of coaches. It's sort of this opulent lifestyle. And I would agree with uh, Christine's numbers, uh, and I, we looked at statistics from lots of different surveys and reports, that indeed the uh, increased expenditures in men's football and basketball have uh, um, gone up uh, more than has women's athletics in the last, and almost, you can look at almost a five-year, 10-year, 15-year, and we on the commission looked at lots and lots of different data. It was borne out by what Christine said. So clearly you can argue, if you're looking at the ratios, if your desire is to uh, uh, meet Title IX regulations by managing the ratios that are required by the 79 interpretation, then you could argue that football is the enemy, it's a convenient target. Yet on the other hand, uh, I would argue that programs with big-time football provide more opportunity for women, more financial aid for women, and better goods and services for women. In effect, what happens is 
that uh, uh, football, if, if in most athletic departments, is uh, uh, like a rising tide, it rises, raises all boats. So the paradox becomes, if you're just worried about ratios, if you're worried about imp the, the uh, uh, compliance with the 79 interpretation, football is your enemy. If you're worried about providing scholarship dollars for females, if you're worried about providing opportunity for females, if you're worried about providing sort of goods and services, the quality of the athletic experience, um, then I think football is your friend. Um, I would argue that uh, if you were a woman athlete, you'd probably, a great woman athlete, and you had uh, uh, national and international aspirations, you're probably going to look to play your sport at a school that plays football. And indeed, that's what we find. Uh, uh, BCS eligible teams uh, in conferences that are BCS with automatic eligibility are about 70 of the 320 odd Division I schools, yet they dominate women's championships from top to bottom. There are exceptions, soccer, a couple others, but if you look at most women's championships, you would say that it's football playing schools that are dominating those championships. So I would argue not only can you line up the number of scholarship dollars by school and find the football schools give out the most scholarship aid for women, but you could also look and say that the great women athletes are voting with their feet. They're going to schools that play football because of the experience. So that's the paradox. If you're just trying to comply with Title IX regulations, football is your enemy. If you're a female athlete looking for opportunity, football can be a friend. But it's also, as Christine said, football is probably an enemy because of the ratios of men's Olympic sports. So thank you. Thank you. Uh Next on the agenda is Eric Pearson, who is the chairman of the College Sports Council. I'd like to thank the Knight Foundation Commission for giving me this opportunity to speak today and share with you the College Sports Council's concerns about America's intercollegiate sports system. The CSC is a national coalition of coaches, athletes, parents, and former athletes founded in 2002. The majority of our members are involved in the traditional Olympic sports of track and field, swimming, wrestling, and gymnastics. We're devoted to the preservation and promotion of the student-athlete experience. We place the highest value on the opportunity to participate in sports, and we measure the overall state of health of our college sports system by the total number of participants involved. In our view, the more students that get to play, the better. Generations of Americans have benefited from and continue to confirm the value of the student-athlete experience. However, the CSC has great concern about the future of this venerable old tradition that combines the experiences of the academic with the athletic. Unfortunately, we're witnessing an unrelenting decimation of men's sports programs and a distressing new trend to eliminate small roster women's teams as well. The underlying cause of this erosion is a powerful incentive to decrease the number of participants that is placed on those who oversee intercollegiate sports. I've been invited here today to discuss Title IX and its impact on collegiate sports. The CSC fully supports the spirit of Title IX. We want all students, male and female, of all body types, big and small, lean and stout, to have the opportunity to play sports. We know that it's not just the superstars that can benefit from the educational experience found in athletic competition. As far as Title IX is concerned, the CSC takes issue only with how it has been regulated, or more precisely, 
the proportionality prong of the three-part test. Since 1996, proportionality has been recognized as the safe harbor for complying with Title IX. Every time someone mentions that a school is out of compliance, proportionality is almost always referenced as the measure of non-compliance. Proportionality creates pressure to shrink participation rates. A school is deemed to be in compliance with proportionality if the gender ratio of its intercollegiate athletes mirrors its undergraduate student enrollment. In most athletic departments, male athletes are the majority, yet most schools have a student body that is majority female, hence the dilemma. Athletic administrators are often praised for pursuing a gender equity plan even if it merely consists of the elimination of teams and the limitation of men's squad sizes. The, cur the current environment of gender equity compliance creates incentives to drive students away from athletic programs, shrink squad sizes, and drop teams entirely. This is unfortunate in many ways. The CSC believes that schools that provide the most programs for their athletes are the most likely to create athletic programs that are more integrated into the academic life of a school. The more teams a school sponsors, the more participants it will have, and the less likely it will foster an atmosphere of privilege and exclusivity inside its athletic department. Therefore, any system that incentivizes administrators to decrease student participation will likely, over time, serve to segregate athletes from the rest of the student body. Under pressure to comply with the quantitative standards of Title IX, Administrators have developed notorious coping strategies, such as the practice commonly referred to as roster management. This system is designed to reduce the number of athletes on men's teams. It's important to understand that these limits are created by administrators, not by the coaches of these teams. In most sports, men's coaches prefer to be inclusive, allowing participation to all who want to try out as long as they respect the rules of the program. Administrators like to justify roster management by saying that they are managing their resources by managing the squad sizes. But this practice is not by any means gender neutral. It is not uncommon to see a men's swimming or track team given strict limits while their female counterparts are asked to actually inflate their rosters. Women's coaches don't like this practice either because it interferes with the control that they have over their teams, especially with the problem athletes who they'd actually prefer to cut. Squad quotas contribute to the divide between the student body and the athletes by making the experience less accessible to the non-elite student athletes. In many ways, the walk-on athletes are the ones who keep the system more honest because their desire to participate demonstrates that everyone can benefit from sports if they're willing to work hard and abide by the team rules. Title IX was never intended to limit participation. When you speak with coaches of women's teams, they will tell you that they want to have equal access to facilities, equivalent funding for their teams, good locker rooms, uniforms, and sufficient travel budgets. They are not interested in how many players are on the men's rosters, and they certainly don't want to see teams eliminated. We believe that reform of Title IX can go hand in hand with ongoing efforts to reintegrate athletics into the cultural fabric of our college campuses. The struggle to maintain academic integrity in college sports will be best served by pushing for more broad-based athletic departments rather than following the current fashion of narrowing down opportunities to play sports. In the present system, 
athletes have no real power over the decisions that impact the very existence of their programs. Just look at the protests that continue on campuses across the country where sports teams have been dropped. Fresno State, Rutgers, and James Madison University have all recently dropped programs despite outcries of students who don't want to see these athletic teams terminated. If we are sincere about making real changes to improve the state of collegiate sports, we need to find ways to empower students with a voice to push back against the forces that relentlessly seek to limit participation. With slight modification, a potential solution may be found in the third prong of Title IX's three-part test, which already has an interest and abilities component. Currently, the regulations only protect the interest of the underrepresented gender, in other words, the, the female athletes. The CSC recommends that male students also be included in any and all measurements of interest. Through regular student surveys, the athletes will be given a voice of record and a degree of influence in the process that determines the school's sports sponsorship. Reforming prong three of Title IX will create incentives to not only retain programs, but also to add new teams. The current system of Title IX enforcement is unsustainable. If left unchanged, we'll continue to see the widespread elimination of teams. To compound the problem, we are seeing a growing disparity between male and female enrollment. Many more women are enrolling in college than men, making it virtually impossible to achieve proportionality without eliminating all but a few sports for men. Proportionality does not necessarily protect women's teams either. More schools are now dropping multiple teams for both men and women. And the fact is that proportionality can be more easily managed with fewer overall teams. In closing, I'd like to say that the dialogue that we are having here today is extremely important if we are to work towards a solution to the Title IX problem. Unfortunately, we often look through this issue through a lens focused on the past. It's been 35 years since Title IX was passed into law, and the environment of today's college campus is very different from the era of the 1970s. Female undergraduate enrollment now surpasses male enrollment. And today, NCAA schools sponsor over 1,000 more teams for women than they do for men. Much of the discussion about the collegiate sports system is focused on change emanating from the leaders of our universities or reforming from the top down. In order to foster a truly comprehensive campaign for change, we also need to consider ways to reform from the bottom up. Empowering students by systematically measuring their interests will prove to be a crucial step towards the reintegration of athletics into the culture of our universities and to help stop the disintegration caused by proportionality. Again, I thank you for including the, the College Sports Council in this very important dialogue. Thank you very much. Now, the floor is open for questions, comments, and reactions. Anita? Could you put your mic on? Thank you. I'm worried about reforming a concept that's based on equal educational opportunity. Why do you want to reform that? Don't we want to move forward with ensuring that we have equal educational opportunity? Um, to me, sports is a birthright. It belongs to every human being. For too long, women did not have access to the sports right. And in our nation, education and sports go together. And so it took far too long to provide that equal educational opportunity in 
of sports being provided to girls and women. We're there, and now it seems that for the last 30 years it's been a slugfest over how to prevent that from happening. Uh, it just, to me, is outrageous. I'm sorry. I have difficulties understanding why it is we don't do what we're supposed to do. To have, uh, I'm sorry, you know, finding ways to slide through, you know, uh, this, this, uh, the third prong of where if you're going to registration and you might not see this email and you have to say that, oh gosh, golly, there might be a bunch of us who happen to come to school here who might want to row, for example, and if we forget to say that we want to row, there might not be a rowing program. How disingenuous is that about educational opportunities? And when a young man comes to my office and I have to say, I'm sorry, you can't be on the team because we have a situation here where we filled the team slots already with, with, uh, with, uh, 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 let's see, uh, with people who have scholarships. That's what I say. I don't say it's because of Title IX. I say because we've made a decision that we're going to fill the team with scholarship athletes. The scholarships are for one year. Some of these athletes may not get their scholarship next year. So don't worry, you can try out. It's not this evil Title IX, it's about decision making for the good of the student athletes. Every student who goes to that school should have the opportunity to take part in band or music or math or whatever it is. And if you're good enough, maybe you're not good enough. But what is this nonsense about trying to figure out how to make one group special? The cushy, I can't believe this argument, oh now, I need to be reasoned about this. The well, argument that there's one group that has this extra cushy lifestyle with huge salaries, we have to take them out of the discussion completely because after all, it'd be impossible to have them equal. Right. Seems to me so absurd, Jerry, but it's what? real, it exists. One last thing, okay. by the way, these, these budgets that bring in all this money and all these goods to the student body, the footballs and so forth, I say to you, that works only if it's not driving the budgets into deficits. How much of expenditure is met by income in these huge budgets? And I believe there are only about a dozen of the big money schools that actually have income to meet that, at least as far as football is concerned. And that's enough for me for now. Dr. Grant, uh, in your data, uh, you showed the uh, uh, rising costs of budgets and so on. Have you pulled out or seen pulled out of the uh, budgets for athletic departments, the salary component as opposed to the operational component? And particularly, let's say, in women's basketball, men's basketball, because I think you're alluding to the fact that that's where the real difference is, is in the growth in salaries. And I know they're operational, too, having to do with facilities, but was there anything that pulled out salaries uh, as opposed to operations in that? It'd be similar to that uh, mm -hmm. slide there. The NCAA has been doing a terrific job of uh, improving the questionnaire, especially over the last two to three years. But so far, and I, as, I, as I say, I haven't really got in my hand the final report for 2005. So far, we don't have the ability to pull the salaries out. So okay. the data that I show uh, include the salaries. But that doesn't mean to say that we cannot do it in the future. And they may be looking to do that right now. I don't know. And by conferences, and Anita, that gets at some of your 
questions too, because I think you have to know as you're going through here uh, the financial components of it, what the parts are that are creating the problems uh, to really know where to focus. And the idea for uh, any trust exemption, I know the NCAA and the NCAA Board of Directors is looking at it. When the five non-equity conferences were discussing with the uh, six equity, BCS equity conferences, uh, the opportunity for that we saw with uh, Boise State this year, we looked at it uh, also. And uh, in the current climate and with uh, the legal interpretations, it's going. There's not a lot of optimism for that. And uh, maybe there will be a way to do it. But in our meetings with the NCA Board of Directors here a few weeks ago, what we basically said is we certainly need to keep talking about it until we find some way to deal with it because uh, until we can find uh, a legal way f from that standpoint uh, uh, with a non-exempt uh, uh, antitrust exemption, uh, there's got to be some other way to address it. And uh, right now, I can't find any optimism on it. Mike, you've been involved with that more than I. Maybe you see a ray of light I don't see. Mike Adams. <coughs> My late mother used to say there's some problems there's no answer to. And uh, that was a Mike lesson. Mike was on the board of directors, I should say. That, that was a lesson that I think I learned at an early age. It doesn't mean you quit looking for answers. Uh, I, uh, I, I think the whole thing is about as complex as anything I've ever been involved with. Uh, Ted and I have talked about it before. By the way, I appreciated what you had to say this morning. And Christine, all of us are indebted to you, and we're pleased to see you finally get the recognition at the convention you. that you were due. And I congratulate you on the Ford Award. But I. The, the board continues to look at this. Uh, we've hired some of the best antitrust counsel in the country. Uh, and I would like to think that that is a part of the solution at some stage. But virtually every piece of advice we get from them is to the contrary. Uh, I would also remind you that we've made two ill-fated efforts to uh, control salaries, both of which have cost us uh, tens of millions of dollars, and even, uh, uh, and I'll have to be careful even even here in a public forum, e even the discussion of that by somebody like myself, who's chair of the Finance Committee, uh, is not judged a wise thing uh, uh, to do. So we, we continue to explore uh, that is as an option. Uh, if somebody can find an avenue, uh, I've talked to members of Congress who uh, uh, have looked at this as well. Whether or not, if the investigation, quote unquote, uh, of uh, tax exempt status, status is pursued, whether or not this is one of the spinoff issues that have to be examined, then uh, so be it. But I don't. Uh, I don't see it as a solution in the near term, uh, personally. The, the other thing I would, I would like to say, and this is self-evident from Christine's data, uh, also from, uh, I th think, the comments of my friend Anita, I've got to think through the birthright comment, uh, <laughs> male or female, but uh, we, can, we can argue that philosophically. Uh, later as to whether or not sports participation is a birthright. Uh, but uh, 
let's 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 not lose sight of the progress of the last uh, 15 years as well and and I'm from I'm from one of those evil places uh, right now in the black uh, and we're only in the black because we've instituted the kind of controls that I think you have to institute to operate uh, in the black but uh, you know and even in my 10 years we've gone from nine men sports and eight women sports to nine men sports and uh, 12 women sports and and on uh, virtually every case I think are as close to compliance as as an institution can be so there there has been considerable progress many of us at this table believe in equal opportunity for women and uh, and I hope we can keep that in the context as well Mike not any, many of us all of us do but Miss Judge and then uh, Chuck Young well, one thing I just wanted to point out, when you're talking about collegiate salaries, it's important in this forum to remember that we're focusing on the Equal Pay Act uh, analysis rather than Title IX. For the most part, for Title IX, when you're looking at uh, coaches' salaries, you look at uh, the programs from the perspective of the student-athletes, so you look from the bottom up, and are the salary differentials prohibiting or, or creating uh, uh, impediments for women to uh, receive the same quality of coaching that men are receiving. Uh, because we have a number of uh, very talented uh, coaches on the women's side who just are not given the opportunity to get the same kinds of salaries that they're getting on the men's side, the, the women are still getting very excellent uh, coaching opportunities. But the analysis is very different than what we've been talking about today. The market is allowed to control when it comes to college salaries, and that's very different from Title IX. Chuck Young. I'm, I'm going, to, going to say what I say with some concern that, that uh, I might be misunderstood, so I'm going to, to, proof, uh, to uh, give a little prelude to what I say. Uh, I believe very strongly in the principles and, in, as a matter of fact, in the essence and in the, 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 the uh, very uh, wording, as a matter of fact, of Title IX. Uh, and I, I believe very strongly in equal opportunity for women. I think that I've, and the, in the two institutions that I've served, I think we've done very well in that regard. Um, but, and, and I believe there's a lot more that needs to be done, and we ought to keep, uh, keep working at it. I don't disagree with much of anything that has been said. I guess I can't really, except for one thing. I think to say that that Title IX has not had a negative impact from time to time of, of, a, of a real nature on men's athletics is, inac is inaccurate, and I don't think it needs to be said. Um, you made the statement, Christine, that, that no men's sport, I think, that no men's sports had ever been eliminated because of Title IX. Or if they did, I got the impression that you thought it was uh, ingenuous disingenuous, excuse me, on the part of the people who did so. Um, I, there, are, there are clearly at UCLA men's sports that were, that were canceled, uh, that were done away with for that purpose, including, the, including a sport which just a year or two before had in effect been the, the, the U.S. gymnastics team. At the University of Florida, there is no volley, men's volleyball team. And I think that one might, might argue that 
that volleyball would, men's volleyball would be a pretty effective, good sport in, in the University of Florida. And, and I, I, now, I'm not saying that this is something that is broad, widespread, and I'm certainly not saying that, that it is not, that people do not make excuses, as uh, Anita mentioned, uh, with regard to what they uh, tell students, that we, we can't let you on the team because there's a cap because of Title IX. I'm certain that people are disingenuous in that respect. But there are really uh, pr problems that have arisen. And what I would hope is that we could, and I, I can't tell you how to uh, give, give you any, any solution to those problems, but I think we ought to recognize that there are problems, and we ought to try to find solutions to, to prevent those things from happening. Um, I find it very embarrassing. I keep it, 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 talking to former, uh, for instance, to former gymnasts at UCLA who wanted, want, me to, want me to tell them why we don't have gymnastics at UCLA. And, I, and, and I'm convinced that the reason we don't have it is the reason we've said we don't have it. Uh, now, maybe it could have been something else, and I wish it had been something else. I think that was, that was not the right decision and I argued against it. But I, I do think we ought to recognize the fact that there are problems that have been created, and we ought to try to resolve those problems. Harding Carter? No, I oh, I'm sorry. Question just... you can ask, and I think perhaps an answer. And then... yeah. Yeah. Christine? What I was trying to say was that um, for men, when you analyze the data over the last 34 years, there has been an increase overall in participation opportunities for men. That's the first thing. And, the, you know, all the studies have confirmed that. I do not disagree at all that there have been losses in men's sports, particularly in wrestling and gymnastics. But they lost so many teams when Title IX was either not in effect or not being enforced. So the loss has nothing to do, in my mind, with Title IX. There are other reasons for the decline in these two sports. And it may be because there's an increase in other sports for men, like football has been going steadily up for the last 25 years, and soccer has been even higher on an incline. So I, I hear what you're saying. There definitely have been losses in specific sports, but what I'm saying is there have been additions in other sports, and overall, when you look at the data, Men, men's opportunities have actually increased. When we talk about caps, that's a slightly different topic, but it's an important topic. Walk-ons cost money. You know, there's no question about that. And if, you, if an institution doesn't have money to satisfy a federal law for women over here, I don't see that it's really wrong to cap men's sports. Actually, when you think about it, we already cap all sports. We don't say anybody who wants to come and play basketball at the University of Iowa can come. We can't. We've got to say, okay, we're going to limit our squad to 15 or 16 or 17 because the more people you have, the more money that sport costs. So I, I would love to be able to say we will accommodate 
all the interests and abilities for both men and women, the reality is we will never be able to do that for either men or women. I'm interested in what uh, the panel thinks, and perhaps Ms. Grant particularly, about the adequacy of the coverage of this issue and the ability of that coverage to deal with fact as opposed to either urban myths, which I just heard reiterated, or uh, the notion that uh, there is a direct correlation in all instances between Title IX and some of these very specific examples. Parenthetically, Chuck, why don't you just tell the person at University of Florida that one half of one percent of your annual increase in football would pay for the damn uh, volleyball cost. And no, no, wait. I mean, I mean that that volleyball. And 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 going to the and going to it, or just simply telling your football coach that he does not really need 120 people. Yeah. Miss Grant, would like to respond, and I'll go through which, the other. Which one of those? Do you, which one of those do you want? To, he, his, first <laughs> question, <laughs> his first question was coverage. So why don't yeah, you start talk there? about the coverage. I was just thinking about that graph about the decline before yeah. Title IX, and yet virtually all coverage starts with the proposition that the cause of the decline in, in wrestling and what have you is because of Title IX, which your graph at any rate indicates rather statistically clearly. But that requires research. So I'm asking, how is the coverage of this issue? The coverage of, of Title uh, IX and its implications. Is very poor. Good. And in the debate that occurs on it, it is a useful thing for that debate. I think if we could get uh, more transparency on all of the complex problems that are facing intercollegiate athletics right now, it would only benefit in so many ways. I, I'm sad to hear that there's very little hope for an antitrust exemption because, I mean, I have watched very good, honorable presidents feel that they have no option but to keep increasing these salaries. Um, I, I would hope that we would still continue to pursue it, although it may not be that hopeful right at this moment, because the consequences of just letting everything slide are so great. I mean, we, we are going to let our intercollegiate athletic programs slide straight into professionalism with small, small programs for both men and women, and totally out of keeping with the values of our higher education institutions. Let me go down all of the panelists first before I recognize the members of the commission. Yeah. Yes, in terms of the uh, commission's uh, you know, testimony from the American public and from institutions, we, I think, had six or seven that we quizzed very, uh, uh, went into depth with regarding why did they drop men's sports or why did they cap men's sports. And I think the, the real answer is it's very complicated reasons. It was almost always more than one reason. Um, and uh, uh, the problem became is that Title IX became the sound bite. It was easy to explain. We don't want to do this. It's, we're not motivated to do this. We feel badly. Uh, this isn't why we took this job, our, our, you know, our values, everything. We'd like to keep you, but we can't because of. And why, what's that because of? It's easy to explain. So we, I think many of the commissioners felt that after 
these uh, um, uh, really trying to drill down into institutional decisions, and people were very honest about it, felt that it was complicated reasons, but the soundbite too often was, let's blame it on the women. Ms. Judge? In my experience, the, the, uh, the coverage of Title IX and, and the disagreements have become very polarized. And for that reason, athletes, uh, presidents, and faculty members, and coaches, and administrators are very reluctant to state their true opinion about the issues. Uh, that's been unfortunate. And some of my best discussions have been when I am hired to come into a program and have the opportunity to go in and sit down with the president at the beginning of the process and talk about what his or her vision is for athletics and what Title IX is all about. And, and I'm sure not surprising to many of you, there's an awful lot of miscommunication out there funneled um, to senior administration by those who have their ear. And I found that to be very discouraging because there is a lot to discuss in Title IX. And there are a lot of valid, disparate opinions about where this all stands. I mean, people believe absolutely in their gut that relative interest should be the standard, and others believe absolutely that there's a birthright and you look at substantial proportionality based on undergraduate full-time enrollment. I think that you know, I have my view of it, but I believe that other people believe sincerely in their view as well. I just want to address one uh, issue. I, th I think that actually I was the person who was saying it was disingenuous, and I think Sorry, Christine. That's okay. um, but in my, uh, in my experience, uh, and I, I work closely with schools when they make these decisions uh, on, on what they're going to do and th with the future of their program, uh, Title IX is one of a number of factors that come into play when deciding how the ultimate uh, financial decisions are going to be made. So there is a there is a beginning point where people say we just cannot sustain our program at its current level, so we're going to have to cut back or increase fundraising or do a whole variety of other things. Once that decision is made, then Title IX comes in to look at how the program is going to play out. So in that way, Title IX gets blamed for a lot of times, as Ted said, uh, a lot of cases where there are a whole variety of other factors. And as I said earlier, and I think this is the one piece that really does keep on getting missed in the message, no one needs to cut a men's sport ever unless the men are overrepresented on campus, meaning they have traditionally been given more opportunities than women. And there exists presently on campus a group of women who can field all of the positions of the squad. In fact, in the most recent guidance, they even said you have to have a pitcher in softball and a first baseman and everything else. They spontaneously show up on your campus in sufficient numbers and sufficient ability. Only when they are knocking on your door and they can show they're the underrepresented sex and that they want to play, that's the only time you have to ever consider cutting a men's sport. So to say that Title IX is responsible for this, these cuts, I think is disingenuous. That's not to say that I don't feel for student athletes. In my senior year at Harvard, I lost my eligibility to participate in athletics. And I know, maybe more than many other people, what that feels like to stand on the sidelines when you desperately want to play and you brag about how much better you would be if you were. Um, but to say that Title IX is the reason, I think is disingenuous. Mr. Pearson and then uh, Al Alfred. Yes, I, I have several comments uh, on several comments. Uh, in reply to several comments. 
many of you were probably listening to me after seeing Dr. Grant's presentation. You probably said, what, what is he talking about losing teams? Um, the presentation by Dr. Grant, the statistics, uh, reflect uh, many teams, or not teams and schools that have merged into the NCAA from other organizations, NAIA, junior colleges, uh, a, a lot of schools want to become part of the NCAA. So you have a greater number of schools that have come into the NCAA and with them they brought more programs. And, and the problem with these statistics that you just saw, they don't have a steady baseline from which you can judge whether men's teams have been dropped. And this is an ongoing problem with our statistics that, that we, we always analyze. We're looking at participation rates, and you look here and you say, well, they've gone up. What's your problem? And, and I'm constantly getting calls from parents of kids are, are losing their, their programs. So uh, we need to have more transparent uh, a study. And one thing I do recommend is the Knight Commission undertake a, a study that has a consistent baseline where we can compare over 20 years, um, say, 800 schools that were in the NCAA and 1980s to where they are now and, and how many uh, students they have per per at the average student or athletes per campus. That's, that's very important. We can't really have a, 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 an in-depth conversation about the loss of programs until we have the real statistics. Um, another uh, comment I'd like to make is uh, regarding the wrestling. Wrestling, wrestling is always the problem. Uh, you know, the wrestlers are always causing trouble. They're the ones who are losing all the teams. The teams 